Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast, uh, the only podcast to get your military history-based depression. I'm Joe, and with me again is Tom, not in studio this time. How's it going, Tom? I'm good. I'm good. I'm recording from home, powered by Elf Bars. Uh, Nate has is currently on tour, so he has the mixer with him, so I am working from home for once uh, recently, so it's a bit strange. Uh, my setup is going to get so much better when I move in a couple of weeks. I won't have to like be in this like audio cube right here. The con- Forget the content minds. We're all about the audio cube. <laughs> Embrace the cube. Um, when I move, I would like to have like a dedicated recording. I mean, I guess I do kind of have a dedicated recording space, but I, because of my apartment, I cannot have like a soundproof area where I can record. Not that there's a lot of sound. Uh, my apartment is quite quiet. But, uh, you know, yeah, like it could be better. Uh, At the same time, I'm not the producer. So I cannot hear when there's something wrong with the podcast. (laughs) That is like more than once, like you or Nate will be like, oh, you know, I I don't want to record from like, for instance, when we're recording the Taiping series uh, a few weeks back. Nate's like, well, I record the first one at home, so I should record all of them at home so nobody can tell the difference. I'm like, Nate, I, I have some bad news. You two are the only two people that can tell the difference. Like, no, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Uh, nobody else can tell. Um, so, Tom, last week, we talked about Eurovision. Um, yep. And in that time, uh, we have had the finals, um, which seemed to have pissed everybody off. I am so angry. I'm so mad. Finland was robbed. I fully believe the conspiracy that Sweden got it purely because it's the 50th anniversary of ABBA next year. It's now a conspiracy theory, I also believe. And like even going beyond Sweden. And yeah, I understand this podcast is coming out like three weeks after Eurovision. I'm sorry. This is just how we work. But uh, uh, like even beyond Sweden, which got like all of the judge votes. Um, Germany was fucking robbed. They they did not deserve last place at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like the UK was by far had a worse performance. Um, Israel did not deserve to a be in Eurovision and <laughs> b th- have third place. Um, yeah, like I like on a on a technical level, the um I can't remember her name the. She sang Euphoria, won it in 2012, and then it's won Lorraine, this year. Yeah, yeah, Lorraine. Like, to, to give her her credit, is a phenomenal performer. Like, literally, like, world-class vocalist. Like, the stuff she does is just, like, it, on a technical level, is insanely difficult. I, I am cha-cha-cha-pilled. Finland should have won it. Yeah, Korea, uh, Kar- Korea, Korea absolutely own that. Like, the crowd turned on Eurovision as it became clear what was happening. And I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure there's, like, 
because I was watching it and there were sections where the hosts were talking and I'm pretty sure they had to like cut some of their mics because everyone was chanting cha-cha-cha so loudly. Yeah, I was watching the live stream and like when during judging, well, for instance, during his performance, the crowd was louder than he was during the chorus or his backing vocals, whatever. And then... um. During the judging, you could like people were losing their fucking minds. It became it quickly became clear that everyone's like the judges are 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 giving this to Sweden, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and Germany was fucking robbed. Italy was robbed. Italy's performance was incredible. France should have done better. Spain should have done better. Mm-hmm. I, the only thing that I learned is that as an American, the electoral college also uh, fucking sucks for Eurovision. <laughs> <laughs> but like so. Spain should have done a lot better than they did. That was a, like an incredible like performance and song, and like I kind of look at it as you're taking in like not just the song but the whole stage performance. And yeah. like Spain was great, France was serving like unlimited levels of cunt. It was very like <laughs> it was very like Jesse Ware inspired. Belgium just did a straight up rip off of Take That's Relight My Fire, like literally like almost note for note in uh, the course it just sounded exactly like uh, take that three light my fire i you know my my sleeper on this like obviously uh, last week i said i didn't expect armenia to win i'm a realist i fucking love australia's performance it was that, so good it was so yeah. good and we had two bands that did fucking death growls at eurovision australia's yeah, it, chorus it and death and glitter uh in germany which is like I, like I said last week, this is not my kind of music. People have listened to this show before know what kind of music I listen to. You know, I'm not into like Euro pop or techno and shit. Mm-hmm. But like the fact that you have like heartfelt like e- Edith Piaf type ballads from France next to some guy from Germany doing death growls is fucking incredible. <laughs> um, See, this is, this is the benefit of like automatic entry into the final. Like you can take risks. France is usually quite conservative with their entries. It's usually kind of a ballad or something kind of disco inspired, something like that. Something very um, French. Yeah. Yeah. Like Germany, like once again, they benefit from automatic entry so they can do stuff like that. It seemed like there was a lot of kind of people trying to do lordy stuff. I can't remember the country that did it, but I did enjoy the Ghost in the Shell inspired song where I had like the big robot on the screen. Serbia. That was Serbia. Serbia. And they also also had like a Mortal Kombat bit as well. Yeah. Which fucking ruled. I mean, not my kind of song. That guy tumbled out of the womb of Bergheim, but like uh, the the performance ruled. Yeah, a lot lot of failures this year of weaponizing twinks. Like usually... Switzerland did a good job. Switzerland did a good job. But like overall, like I, I felt like because I was watching with some mates of mine we were drinking, and it was like the first half it felt like lacked something, and then the second half it was all systems go. You know, once you got to... Uh, it was who came before Finland? Uh, whoever came before Finland, um, kind of, that was the turning point of like, okay, it's starting to pick up in energy, but like Finland's performance, like the staging, it was just so good, like conceptually as well. Like oh, it performance. Ruled. Like the song is cha cha cha, and we were watching it, and they were like, "What? What's with the dancers? Like they're supposed to be cha cha dancers." Yeah. Um. And I feel uh so bad for poor Albania. They had like the only like folk tinged song on there, and they were served up to eat the most amount of shit on earth. 
by yeah. I believe they followed Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, oh, I, just go out there and die, guys. You're fucked. <laughs> yeah, and like one one of my uh, favorites was uh, wasn't even a per a performer. It was a uh, Daddy Fear who like was meant to compete during COVID. Did a cover of Atomic Kittens. You can make me whole again. And I was like, this is this is great. Like this is you know because uh, I know we talked about it before, but. Uh, Kieran Dold from Corner Spady, you know, his theory that like half of Europe thinks Eurovision is the straightest thing possible and then everyone else realizes it is just camp as hell. And like yeah, there's it, a reason just, why everybody calls it the gay Olympics. Yeah, gay Christmas. Yeah. Um now is this like gay Christmas? Is it like Christmas in general? As you text you texted me yesterday and said like this is going to be revenge for the trouble series, so this is going yeah, to be is. horrible. For the first time ever, you hosted a series that made me depressed. Um, I mean, and I, I fully understand that as a guy who researches genocides as uh, an academic profession, it's hard to make me like feel things anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did that with the troubles. So my job now is to make you very sad, <laughs> which, oh, is, no. which is why we're talking about the U.S. government's treatments of the indigenous American people today. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Tom, uh, normally, like, Nate would be on for an episode like this, but, like, he's, you know, working, he's on vacation, and and it would be very fun to take someone who's not very familiar with the U.S. government's, I mean, everybody's kind of familiar with the U.S. treatments of indigenous Americans, but not intimately familiar with it. Like, Mm -hmm. I won't won't even say most Americans are, but, like, you know. Someone who researches genocide. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So this might shock you, Tom, when I tell you that the U.S. has something of a bad track record when it comes with the, let's call them relations with the indigenous people that this that the American nation was built on top of. Um, now, we've talked before, kind of at length, at the slow-rolling generations-long genocide of the indigenous people of the Americas, something that is still criminally undertaught in American history classes, unless, of course, you are one of my students. Hey, guys. Uh, I know some of you still listen to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Today, we're going to talk about something that should be familiar for some people, especially people maybe from the Pacific Northwest, uh, but maybe not. Uh, It is the Nez Perce War. Um, Oh, God. Just as soon as you mentioned the Pacific Northwest, I'm like, oh, we're going to experience some weird proto-fascist genocide. I mean, that is just American history um, up until, well, I would say today, but... uh, we now go live to Florida um, <laughs> and Texas. I, sh- I shouldn't laugh about that. That is so depressing. The, we've talked about this before, like when we did the series on Nan King and like the Khmer Rouge series. Like we're we're laughing nervously because we don't know what else to do. <laughs> these are not la- these are not labs of joy. There's no joy to be had here. This is a cry for help in the form of laughter. And like without going into it too much, because I don't want to fall into a rabbit hole here before we get started, because this is quite a bit of an episode we have to go through. Um, There is no uniform experience when it comes to the genocide against indigenous people, depending on where they were in the United States, what tribe they belong to, etc. What happened to them was was different. Um, For instance, the Nez Perce tribe specifically did not come in contact with the United States, really, until very late 
into what you'd consider the history of this genocide. That doesn't make them any less of victims or anything like that. It just means that their experience is quite different. It, and uh, because, you know, the United States is so fucking large and they generally live in the Pacific Northwest, it took America time to get to them. Um, now, we have to, today we're going we're gonna to give you a little bit of an, a short overview, not an ex- exhaustive overview of the Nez Perce people, just so you can kind of understand why this took so long. Um, for instance, Nez Perce, which is the name they legally go by today, is not the name that they use for themselves. It was given to them by the, uh, by the first contact with white people, which was by French Canadian fur traders. Um, in their language, their name that they give themselves is Nimipu uh, or Nemipu, which just roughly translates as the people. Um, but today, like there's the, the Nez Perce Nation and, and reservation and stuff like that. They were the dominant people of virtually the entire Pacific Northwest. Uh, at the time of the Lewis and Clark expedition, that you could consider what roughly their territory though obviously they were not what you'd consider a solidified state, but yeah. uh, their territory that they moved through covered about 17 million miles uh, throughout what, what is today Washington State, Idaho, and Oregon. Uh, or if you really want to piss people off, Oregon. Um, Oregon. <laughs> of course, they were not a unified people. They had tons of different bands uh, or, you know, subgroups spread out over a collection of different nomadic groups, but also permanent villages and towns, which would grow and shrink in population as the season changes because, you know, seasons changes, they go out to hunt, they need to go out further to forage. Yeah. People move. Yeah. They historically survived through foraging as hunter-gatherers, specifically in the form of gathering wild berries and herbs, but also hunting and fishing. Uh, fishing especially because the Pacific Northwest, great fishing. Um, you know, until a certain time, there was, uh, these things are very plentiful in the area. And then the fucking white people showed up. Oh, um, no. now obviously they had already made, uh, incidental contact with, uh, French Canadian fur traders, but we've talked about before French Canadians and the French in general used much different colonization tactics when they had holdings in America. Uh, so they weren't, that there was not a sustained contact that the Nez Perce really had to worry about. Um, and this this sustained contact began with the Lewis and Clark journey. Now, when Lewis and Clark met the tribe, they were overwhelmingly nice to the explorers, giving them whatever they needed, including fresh and rested horses. Because, you know, we've talked before, you can literally ride a horse to death. Um, it's, yeah. yeah. Pity the horse. Yeah. Not too much, though. They have weird people teeth, and I can't forgive them for that. <laughs> I don't like horses. I, I don't either. Um, I rode horses a few times growing up, and uh, you know what? Just let them be. It's 2023 now at the time of recording this. You don't need to ride a horse anymore. Um, unless you live somewhere where you do, in which case you probably aren't listening to this podcast. Save a horse, ride a cowboy. Don't You know what? I'm actually uh, in favor of that as long as you treat the cowboys the exact same as the horses, which means you have to nail their cowboy boots to their feet. <laughs> that's how you stop snakes getting in them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No more snake in my boot. Now, when Lewis attempted to trade them some meat for the horses, the local chief was offended, insisted, no, take the horses for free. We have plenty. And if we needed meat that badly, we'd eat the fucking horses. Take, take the horses. Um, they were so friendly that they ended up living together for over a month. 
Not like the French to take horse meat. Uh, the Lewis and Clark are American. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I, there's another series sometime in the future about the Lewis and Clark expedition, but yeah, Lewis and Clark were American explorers contracted by the government for a reason, mm. which we we're about to talk about. Now, friendly relationships between the white explorers and the Nez Perce uh, was a soon, soon to be, like would always be, completely ruined by the concept of the United States and Thomas Jefferson's idea of manifest destiny. Now, are you, All my homies hate Thomas Jefferson. I'm the only good yeah, Tom. That's right. Uh, I mean, you, you're vaguely aware of the concept of manifest destiny, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, westward expansion. Yeah. Um, you know, by, by value of being God's favorite people, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, this manifest destiny in the expansion west was the entire reason why Lewis and Clark had been sent west to begin with, making contact with the Nez Perce only two years after the Louisiana Purchase and the true beginning of American westward expansion. So, let, yeah, like the whole, while Lewis and Clark themselves may have been friendly to the Nez Perce, their entire reason for being there was inherently violent. Yeah. Throughout the years uh, after and, you know, with a few wars, American holdings in the West continued to solidify, though these wars were not against the Nez Perce, who continued to live in peace and relative isolation. Uh, the Nez Perce never fought a war against the United States until the time we're talking about during this podcast. You know, they were out there, you know, you're in the middle. I mean, even today, some of these places are quite a bit divorced from the rest of Washington State and Idaho and Oregon. You know, these are wild places. So, you know, and in the 1800s, it takes a lot of time and effort to get to these places. Uh, but just 50 years after first contact with Lewis and Clark, the U.S. government was now at their doorstep attempting to get them to put pen to paper and outline the creation of a Nez Perce Indian reservation. Now, I, I don't like using the term Indian. Uh, it's, for one, it's simply incorrect. Uh, I am not a Native American person, so it's not up to me to decide if people prefer to be called Native Americans or Native Indians. However, the term Indian reservation is the legal term, so I do have to use it. My bad. Um, now, this is for a lot of reasons, mostly just the obvious ones. They wanted the Nez Perce, as well as other tribes, to be moved out of the way to make, make room for the exploitation of the land they once considered their own. But most importantly, in this case, the form of the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, the most important part of the reservation system, of course, though, was control. Because remember, the Nez Perce were not hostile to the United States government. They had not fought them at all. They'd been overwhelmingly friendly towards outsiders, even government officials. The government simply could not let them to continue to exist without their total and complete subservience to the U.S. government. That is the most important thing here. Because there's okay. a very good chance that if they cut a deal with the Nez Perce about the Transcontinental Railroad, they would have let it be built without mm. any problems. Like, can we still, like, hunt and gather here? Yes? Cool. We don't give a fuck. You know? Yeah. Now, this coercion towards a deal came in the form of the Walla Walla Council in 1855. Over the course of a month, the U.S. government represented by the Washington Territory Governor and Head of Indian Affairs, again, name of the government department, was a guy named Isaac Stevens. Now, this guy is fucking nuts, even for the time, I should point out. He was considered violent as hell towards indigenous people, again, in 1855. What, oh, gee. Like, yeah. if you, it, like that that is a very short measuring stick to uh be you know compared against yeah it's like getting fired by the nazis for being too violent 
which yeah. actually did happen by to like a death camp uh, uh, commandant. Yeah, uh, though that was for embezzlement. Actually, never mind. Uh, don't fuck with the money is kind of the trend through history. Mm-hmm. Now his form of negotiation came in two forms: sign the paperwork, or I'll fucking kill you. That's it. I can only imagine this goes swimmingly. Yeah. Uh, now, in more than one situation when dealing with other tribes, not the Nez Perce exactly, he simply forged their signatures and then showed up with an army to enforce the treaty that he invented. Like, this is... This guy doesn't give a fuck. Jesus um, Christ. At one point, even the white people that fell under the, the jurisdiction of the Washington Territory begged the president, which in this case is President Pierce, to remove him from office due to his not only uh, 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 an amount of murder and violence towards the indigenous population that made doing business hard with them because, you know, they, in the Pacific Northwest, free trade between the two groups of people is quite commonplace. But he also crushed political dissident like, uh, or political dissent. He threw people that disagreed with him in jail. He invicted white people from their lands if they married indigenous people, which was a, quite a common occurrence. Um, at one point, he, almost, he tried to arrest a judge. What? Yeah. Um, and like this, like, this is a guy who like he published, this is like, I believe in a year, um, he published a letter in the local newspaper calling for the complete extermination of, of like native Americans in the area. Like he's nuts. He's he's insane. This is, you know, the 19th or 18th century. Like how the fuck can you be this much of a fucking monster? Now, obviously that is a bit of a rhetorical question, but like, this is, yeah. Being out a, of the norm. Being a territorial governor during this era of the United States is is not too much different than being like a camp commandant. Like Jesus. the the extermination and subjugation of the native populations of these westward territorial governors was was a very important part of their job. Uh, yeah, like that. But this is like the thing with like you have the argument about the camps and stuff is like the. Com- complicity of like the administration and like when you think about these things it's like the the mass extermination of people doesn't happen without administration like people yep. pushing pushing pens and pushing paper yeah. the banality of evil so to speak yeah i mean the the entire reservation system in general uh again without falling into too much of a wormhole was to kill people um the reservations that they set aside for the people that they interred there was not their ancestral land they didn't know to, how to how to live on it and even then, like, because the U.S. wanted to turn generally mobile people into an agricultural type people on land that you couldn't grow anything. So they're setting them there to starve and freeze to death, you know, or, you know, in the summer, die of heat exhaustion or heat stroke or, and various other easily communicable diseases, because, again, they also put no health care in place. Um, so like that. The comparison is, I, I know some people are not going to like the comparison, but it's apt. Deal with it. I'm sorry. Um, now, you could see why in 1855, the Nez Perce fully know who this, the kind of guy that this dude was and what he was capable of. So the Nez Perce and other tribes grinned and bared it, signing the Walla Walla Treaty. The treaty granted the Nez Perce and other tribes to remain in a large portion of their own lands, which spanned Idaho, Washington, and the Oregon territories in exchange for relinquishing about 5.5 million acres of their approximately 13 million acre homeland to the U S government. Now this treaty was interesting in that it gave the tribes the right to use any public land, the same way white settlers could use it. 
in a in a form it grants them a separate but equal status okay which is bad um because anybody who ever uses the term separate but equal knows exactly what they mean yeah it's not it's not one of those phrases that uh, fulfills a very generous promise yeah i mean it fulfills a promise it's just not one that you want yeah now, it created the Nez Perce Reservation, which spanned the three territories and was supposed to be under the Nez Perce's control. Per the treaty, no white settlers were allowed on the land without permission from the tribe, and this agreement was supposed to be enforced by the U.S. government under force of arms in the form of the U.S. military. We've been doing this show long enough now that nobody listening probably should be surprised when I say that this is not how anything worked out. Yeah. Almost immediately, white people moved onto the reservation, and the government did nothing to stop or evict them when the tribe reported them to the government. Now, in a lot of situations, this is where the tribe says, fuck it, we'll evict them themselves, and this ends in violence. But the Nez Perce do not do this. They know, specifically one of their main leaders, know that if we resort to violence, they will resort to violence, and they can do violence better than us because of yeah. you know this army that they have. You know? Mm-hmm. This was kind of the status quo for about five years. And then someone discovered gold in 1860. Oh, fuck. Yeah. The small numbers of white squatters on the reservations quickly ballooned into the thousands. They established a whole ass illegal town named Lewiston, which still exists today. So residents of Lewiston, I hope you're proud of your town's history. And uh, after thousands of miners moved in for this gold, the people that follows mi- follow miners and prospectors showed up. Traders, yeah. ranchers, farmers, business owners, things like that. The things that make gold rush towns possible. Yeah, yeah. Build, building an infrastructure around a single industry, yeah. Yeah, which was technically illegal, but is something illegal if the government doesn't actually enforce a law? I would argue yeah. no, especially when the government benefits from this kind of thing. It's soft colonial genocide. The government isn't doing it. Private citizens are doing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. With the tactic endorsement of the government because the government refuses to evict them. Now, there's no evidence to suggest, as the government has in the past, though it has softened in years, that there was some kind of centralized Nez Perce government that came to the conclusion they need to start shooting settlers. And that's because there was no centralized government of the Nez Perce at all. Traditionally, they didn't really have a government. They, The, you know, the government, as far as one existed, which was described by historian Elliot West as, quote, Nez Perce leadership varied with place and circumstance. Day-to-day leadership was by band headmen, sometimes called chief, and they were recognized for skills with dealing with other bands and for being modest, generous, fair, and always ready with kind words. You know, diplomacy. Yeah, it's a, like a decentralized community leadership where it it's kind of a flexible role that changes depending on the circumstances community yeah. community and you know chiefs could you know be hereditary but not always if there if an emergency came up they would decide who would be best at handling that emergency like war or yeah something as simple as we don't have enough food that guy's a really good hunter let's put him in charge of this or that guy's mm-hmm. really good at finding berries and herbs and whatever he's now the food guy you know what a weird concept putting someone in charge who's good at something but Violence began to pop up because, of course, it did. Farmers and ranchers destroyed the land that the Nez Perce forged and depended on in order to survive. Faced with the deprivations and without any kind of legal resource, many young Nez Perce men, sometimes called warriors, 
I'll use the term warriors during this, but these guys are not seasoned warriors like you'd expect. Yeah, They've yeah, yeah, never yeah. fought anyone before. I mean, some incidental band-on-band fighting did occur, but these guys are not hardened warriors. But they grab their guns and resort to violence. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, uh, even like the leadership, it's, you know, titled by circumstance. Yeah. Rather than actually enforce the treaty that they already had, i.e. get rid of the white people squatting on the land, the U.S. government instead demanded a new treaty from the Nez Perce. Remember how I said that the Nez Perce didn't have one leader? Well, the U.S. government, for the ease of themselves, demanded that they needed to have one so they could talk to one guy that could be in charge of the entire tribe. The tribe themselves, of course, didn't actually get to pick who this guy was. There was no voting here in the land of democracy. Instead, the government picked someone that they knew would represent their interests. This was a guy that went by the name Chief Lawyer, a name given to him not because he was an actual lawyer, but because some white guy met him once and thought he acted like one and called him a lawyer. I'll let you decide if that's a good or a bad thing. Yeah. Once again, Chief Shocks. Yeah. Uh... Now, he was the son of a leader who had greeted Lewis and Clark some 50-odd years before, and he was the government knew he tended to be agreeable to the demands of the government. Uh, so the U.S. insisted that this guy could unanimously act for the entire Nez Perce's behalf. The deal presented to them was hardly a deal at all. Give up everything other than a small piece of land east of Lewiston, a town that was illegal and in their territory. And uh, this required the complete and utter relocation of the entire tribe under the barrels of the Americans' guns. They even lost the right to the use of public land. They were being like put ha- in a camp. Yeah, like how like how many people is this? Like what's, what population size would it be? Uh, it would have been several thousand, yeah. Okay. Um, now, the tribe fractured. They broke roughly along two lines. Because remember, the tribe is several different bands of people. Yeah. Um, now, they roughly broke between the pro- and anti-treaty factions. So those lines still were still separated along individual bands and even families amongst their own leaders. The pro-treaty faction was led by Chief Lawyer, and these guys tended to be overwhelmingly Christian. Uh, the anti-treaty faction were mostly faithful to traditional religions uh, and a, 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 something called the Dreamer Cult, which we'll talk about, talk about in a little bit, and were led kind of by a guy that went by the name Tuitekis, or more commonly, Old Chief Joseph. Old Chief Joseph was actually also a Christian, and he was one of the earliest tribal converts and an avid supporter with peace with the whites. However, he believed that they had finally pushed him too goddamn far, and they were asking too much. Now, the anti-treaty faction refused to sign and remain on their ancestral lands, while the treaty faction packed up and left for the reservation. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of think about obviously the pro treaty faction it wasn't necessarily like oh yeah you can take our land i it it, it probably was a case of they re- maybe sensed the consequences of not moving i think everybody knew the consequences of not moving that they're going to come into violent conflict at some point yeah um and to be fair old chief joseph made sure that you know they he kept his people out of the immediate way of settlers. He told them, no matter what, are you supposed to greet them with violence, protect yourselves, defend yourselves, whatever. But like, no revenge. And there was yeah. there was plenty of violence, uh, mostly settler on Nez Perce violence, and there was a lot of young warriors, uh, angry men. Were like, you know, fuck this, we need to fight back. Old Chief Joseph kept them all in line, pointing out that look. 
I understand. But if we do this, we'll be facing the army and we cannot win. Yeah, it's creating an excuse for an escalation of violence that right. like you cannot really defend against. Yeah. And he was smart enough to know that no matter how long they kept this up, the inevitable was eventually going to happen. By 1871, he was on his deathbed and he told his son, also Chief Joseph, quote, you are the chief of these people now. They look to you to guide them. Always remember that your father never sold his country. A few years more and the white men will be all around you. This country will soon hold your father's body. Never sell the bones of your father and your mother. I have a feeling it's about to get worse. Yeah. Now, Joseph was the uh, chief Joseph, this new one, the most popular Joseph. Um, unlike his father, was not Christian. He was a follower of the so-called dreamers cult. Now, this cult was mostly based on traditional beliefs as well as the, the divinings of a guy who I could talk to, you know, the spirits of the, the earth and stuff like that. Um, and it, it was a cult with some fun beliefs. For example, the Native Americans alone were real people, the first created, and the whites, the blacks, and the Chinese, for some reason, I, uh, were later created by God to punish the indigenous Americans for leaving their ancient ways. Now, they believed if they lived as their fathers had done, most importantly, above all else, never plow the land or sign papers for land, which they consider to be against the laws of nature. They believed if they did this and followed the old ways, an army of ghosts would come back to the world of the living, aided by the powers of Mother Nature, and chase the white men from the lands. I'm just wondering why did the Chinese have to catch some strays, you know? I assume it's because at this point, Chinese labor was a pretty important part of American westward expansion. Yeah, I suppose if this whole thing is predicated on the building of the railway, and obviously the railway was predominantly built by Chinese immigrant labor. Makes sense. Yep. So I don't, don't follow know if I the agree old ways. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I agree with the weird Hotep-esque beliefs here, but like, I get, like, I fully understand why they would believe this. Um, they, they, re they invented Yakub. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they kind of did. Um, Cat, Cat Williams is just there saying, like, they send a white devil after you. Now, so it followed the old ways, never plow the land, uh, don't sign paperwork, and an army of ghosts will rise up like the scene from Lord of the Rings and chase the U.S. military for, for, for off your land. Um, though my personal favorite part was that they had a special hairstyle, which is, I don't know what this looks like because I cannot find a picture, but it is described as, quote, a rearing pompadour, which fucking whips. Oh, yeah. Ro rocking around looking like greasers in the 50s. <laughs> Hell yeah. Now, Joseph was in charge for about five years before things really blew up, but things have been escalating for a long time. A white rancher gunned down a Nez Perce man who was out forging for, for herbs in uh, 1876, and Joseph, like his father, had a strict no-violence rule towards the, re the you know, revenge towards the white settlers for fear of the army. In fact, in one situation, a group of armed settlers moved into where they lived. So Joseph led a group of men out to surround them. They were all now Joseph's men were also armed, but they made sure they kept their weapons slung across their backs to show they didn't mean them any violence and simply told them, "Please leave. You're not welcome here." And they did. However, he couldn't control everybody. A group of Nez Perce men from Joseph faction said, fuck this shit, grabbed their guns, and shot a white man in revenge. Which, you know, I get it. 
fair enough. You've like you've been pushed and pushed and pushed for at this point decades. Someone's gonna get clapped, you know. Yeah. And territorial authorities in Washington use this as a chance to pressure the federal government to send more troops into the area and make with the genocide. Now, the U.S. government did not immediately pull the trigger on this. Instead, they reverted back to negotiations. You know, it's easier for the government to get to convince these guys, just go on the reservation and die a long ways so we don't have to actually deploy soldiers and spend money on this. They sent a special presidential commission led by Oliver Otis Howard. He's a veteran of the Seminole Wars in Florida. So he, they sent him for a reason. Yeah. He was sent to meet with Joseph. According to Army records, Howard was shocked to finally talk to Joseph because he assumed, you know, because he's racist, he would be dumb and, you know, not know how to negotiate or be diplomatic. And he found out that Joseph was not only very, very intelligent, but was pretty good at negotiations and diplomacy. He found him a very agreeable man. However, because Joseph was agreeable did not mean the U.S. government was. Oh, How- no. Howard tried to convince him that turning towards an agricultural life, again, on the reservation, made up of land that was entirely worthless for everything, including agriculture, was the future of his people, and he should lead him that way. Now, like we point out, this was literally sacrilege to Joseph and the members of the Dreamers cult, which there were a lot of in his faction. The founder of the Dreamers cult compared plowing the fields to stabbing your own mother. So yeah, he's not going to go for that. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty hard line to take. Yeah. Now, l- after losing the debate on the battlefield of ideas with Joseph, Howard simply pointed out that if you refuse to go onto the reservation, you're going to face the full force of the U.S. Army. Joseph again refused. Now, knowing that conflict was probably coming. Joseph called together all of the anti-treaty bands to pick a man that would lead them into this coming conflict because Joseph was by no means a warrior, despite the fact he's framed as one in popular history and narrative. Now, Mm. he was a great political leader and people liked him, but the man was not a, a military leader. He there's not even any evidence he actually fought during this entire point. One person pointed out that his most important job during this entire saga we're going to talk about was that he cared for horses as other people went and fought. Not everybody's a soldier. It's fine. Yep. Um, sometimes, you got, sometimes you need a guy who's going to look after the horses, sharpen the axes, pick the berries, you know, yeah. like organize things at a civilian level, you know? Yeah. Life goes on during a war. Now, the man they picked... Was a, was a guy named Tuhul Hul Zote, the oldest warrior from amongst the gathering, which translates as either noise or growler, which is what I'm going to call him for the sake of the Nez Perce language. Um, now, he was the opposite of Joseph. He was a bit aggressive and confrontational, which I guess are two things you want in a guy who's your elder warrior. However, he was also very practical. Not previously fighting the U.S. government either, his band had taken the same course of self-restraint as Joseph's. Though, when Howard pointed out that whether he liked it or not, his band was going to be under the authority of the U.S., Growler answered, quote, As long as the Earth keeps me, I want to be left alone. I am not going on the reservation. I I just have this creeping sense of dread of what's what's about to happen. You should. Um, Even with all of this, the anti-treaty factions were given a one-month time frame to pack their shit and get ready to go on the reservation. And they did. You know, uh, Growler and and, and Joseph were like, 
we don't have any. We can't fight them. What else are we going to do? So they grabbed everything they could. And, you know, they this included hundreds and hundreds of head of cattle and horses. And uh, they also had another anti-treaty band leader named White Bird. Um, They all packed up. And on June 14th, they had gathered in a camping spot just south of the reservation for preparations to cross into it. Right. Oh, fuck. You just said a date. No, no. Fuck. Then three young men from one of the bands uh, rode down to a nearby river and shot four settlers dead. Then they returned to the camp to brag about the fact they just killed some white men. Um, so more young men pissed off about all of this, of course, like they've been pushed to the fucking edge, uh, rode off and shot a few more settlers. Joseph and the other band leaders tried to keep all the young men in line, but they, they just couldn't. More and more men fed the fuck up, killed at least 14 people over the next few days. Up until this point, this is the lar- largest confrontation the Nez Perce have ever had with the settlers. Now, Howard wasn't expecting any problems, so he didn't have, like, he had some soldiers there, but they were not great, uh, and immediately requested reinforcements and deployed the forces he had available to crush the anti-treaty faction. In response, the various bands moved into a place called Whitebird Canyon in the south. This is a perfect place to ambush and defend. The canyon was five miles long and one mile wide and only one possible approach for the U.S. Army to take. It was an ambusher's paradise. Thankfully for the Nez Perce, the army was dumb as hell. They numbered about 106 men commanded in two companies, which were obviously much better armed than the Nez Perce. However, these men were all completely green. They had not seen combat in any single way. And all of the soldiers, which is very common for the U.S. military back then, were recent immigrants to the U.S. and had a very tenuous grasp on English. Most of them were Irish and Italian. No! But, <laughs> like, as we have talked about in multiple episodes over the past while, you know, being able to communicate efficiently is very important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're learning how the Irish became white now, people. Yeah, uh, getting press ganged into the, the, the civil and post-Civil War militaries. Like, a lot of times these guys would get off the boats in, say, like, New York, and because recruiters had, like, effectively, like, a bounty for people they could get to sign up, they would make money, and they would mm-hmm. just, like, trick these people into signing paperwork they couldn't read or, or, or really know. They'd get them to sign and then just, like, shove them into a box. Uh, like, well, you're in the army now, son! Oh, God. Someone get Polly Shore on the line. And, and obviously, Irish people speak English. Surprise, surprise. I wonder why that happened. But obviously, a lot of the immigrants coming in were very, very poor and illiterate. Yeah. Also, like at that stage, like the majority of Irish people didn't speak English. Yeah. Uh, and so like if they're getting the true like poorest of the poor, the chance of them having a solid grasp on the English language, not to mention the kind of terminology used in the United States and the United States military quite thin yeah I, like that and being like not able to read english as well <laughs> yeah not a good combination you just have some like big mustached fucking u.s guys saying gibberish to you and you're just like okay i'll sign it i learned a valuable lesson from my time in ireland when an angry man speaking english at me is 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 armed and pushing paperwork in my face i should probably sign it <laughs> <laughs> Um, now the, the various ranks of the unit couldn't really speak to one another. And most importantly, they're officers who are all American. Furthermore, they are, like I said, completely green, no experience really. And on horseback, 
but they could barely qualify as cavalry. So after riding their horses for two days and covering 70 miles, by the time they got to the canyon, their men and animals were just about dead on their feet. The Nez Perce spotted the soldiers on June 17th, and Frog, Joseph's uh, brother, wanted to launch an all-out attack on them immediately. The The Nez Perce had never fought a war against the army, but had the element of surprise, terrain, and riding ability in their favor. Their forces were about equal, uh, but they did seriously lack firepower. Only about they only mm. had about forty guns between them, and some of which were ancient muskets, and the rest were armed with bows and arrows. Though yeah. there's a very s- specific skill that they had in using firearms: accuracy, because they hunted with them. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're hunting and you miss a shot, you can't shoot again. So yeah, you ain't pr- eating. Pretty much all of them are better than any shots of anybody in the U.S. military in comparison to the U.S. military, who were still taught to fire in volleys. Yeah. Then 30 warriors got shit-faced on some stolen whiskey, which left the Nez Perce with about 70 men to use in the attack. Now outnumbered quite a bit. Whoops. Happens to the best of us, boys. Uh, Now, again, Joseph wanted to avoid fighting if they could. So he sent a delegation under a white flag to discuss a truce with the soldiers that allowed both sides to leave the canyon without anybody getting ventilated by a lever-action rifle bullet. Of course, a Ford contingent of soldiers immediately shot at them, starting the battle. Now, the Nez Perce were not stupid. They had prepossessioned their warriors before the fighting had begun, while the army had not. So, after starting the battle by randomly shooting, the advanced position of the soldiers was immediately isolated, and the one advantage that they had is, despite the fact there was no common language amongst them, they had a trumpeter. Soldiers are taught to listen to the sound of the trumpet, which is, you know, crosses language barriers and like oh fuck four toots means i need to run or whatever you know <laughs> rizzle kicks was so prescient yeah uh so the the trumpeter got the fucking trumpet shot out of his hand uh um, that, that, that's some tactical shooting right there i would like to think someone did it on purpose rather than just shooting the trumpeter like fuck that guy in particular fuck his hand now at this point the forward position tries to run they get ambushed All of this gunfire scares the army's horses, which were as green as the men riding them. And we talked about this uh, a little bit before in our uh, Battle of Little Bighorn series. Back then, army doctrine was to dismount the horses before firing. Like, they weren't, like, riding. And now they, they did do cavalry charges on horseback with, like, revolvers and stuff. Yeah, so like they would charge forward with um, like revolvers and stuff when they didn't expect there to be resistance. If if it was an actual battle, you get off and shoot. So okay. yeah, the so soldiers tried to do that. Their horses took off because they weren't conditioned to hear gunfire and ran. Good call on the horses' part. Um, and the other guys running into the battle couldn't dismount and they couldn't shoot from the horseback. So the horses back, so they just got fucking annihilated. Um, and Captain Perry, one of the company commanders, had to resort to using runners. But he passed orders by word leading, rather than writing them down, leading to a battlefield game of telephone. Oh, no. One of his runners uh, ran out to uh, like tell someone, hey, we need to get up that hill and form a defense. And somehow it got passed as a general retreat. Okay. So soon, Captain Perry is like seeing his soldiers running for it and has to like hurry to keep up. Uh, so the okay. Nez, the Nez Perce carry the day 
taking the battlefield and leave 34 dead soldiers behind. The Nez Perce did not leave, lose a single person dead. They had like four wounded. After this battle, the anti-treaty bands finally make up a plan. We're going to Canada, uh, which now Canada's a thousand, over a thousand miles away from where they're currently standing. And this might sound weird to some people, but Canada had allowed so-called outlaw tribes to seek ref, uh, seek refuge across the northern border. Famously, a year after the Battle of Little Bighorn, Sitting Bull led a contingent of his people across into Canada to safety. Now, this is not to say anything nice about the Canadian authorities and their attitude towards indigenous people. Of course not. However, in comparison to how the U.S. government treated people, it was a relief, which is a low bar, I know. However, in order to get to Canada, the anti-treaty bands would have to conduct one of the longest fighting retreats in American military history, all while massively outgunned and outmanned. Now, they dedicated themselves to this and started making their way there, fighting the U.S. military the entire way. The first of these battles was the Battle of Cottonwood, which lasts two days in July of 1877. After their first victory, they crossed the Salmon River, and Howard, who was now chasing them with a reinforced detachment of 400 soldiers, rapidly closed in. The Nez Perce numbered about 600 people total. However, only about 150 of those people you could consider warriors, and most had never fought a day in their lives until the last battle. Knowing that the entire group couldn't get away from the soldiers, they decided that they would fight the whites only long enough so their slower-moving civilian contingent could get away and keep their path to Canada open. Then the warriors would break contact and keep up. Trapped in the confines of the Bitterroot Mountains, the soldiers dug in and the Nez Perce launched delaying attacks against their positions, buying them enough time. And it worked. One Nez Perce warrior was killed, which is their first death of the war, but they did get away. They broke contact and made another 25 miles to the Clearwater River, where they met up with another anti-treaty leader, Looking Glass, who had brought with him about 50 warriors and another several hundred civilians. It was, it was there they decided they need to build the camp and rest. Two days later, Howard and his army caught up with them, starting the Battle of Clearwater. This battle is fun to think of as being the Battle of Clearwater, Florida, and it's just a bunch of Scientologists getting murked, but this time, Howard came prepared, armed with artillery and Gatling guns. He positioned them on a ridge that overlooked the band's camp and opened fire, expecting to break the camp and send them running in disorder, at which point he would send in his cavalry to kill them. Instead, Growler, along with a man named Yellow Wolf and about 30 warriors, mind you, they're outnumbered by hundreds. It took about 30 warriors, jumped on their horses, and led a counter charge up the ridge. This worked Love somehow. It. This fucking worked. Now, a big, it's a big change for uh, our, our recent track record of uphill charges. <laughs> Now, we talked a little bit about this during the Battle of Little Bighorn series, but American military tactics against indigenous people at the time did not factor in what you'd call actual fighting. It was like their idea was you shock them with a charge of cavalry or artillery, and then because Americans are so strong and brave, they would send the indigenous people leaving their villages and camps, um, you know, running away, at which point they would be ran down and murdered as they fled. Yeah, right? like this is what they depended on. So when Howard opened fire, he sent in his cavalry to do this. But instead of running, the 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 cavalry ran into this countercharge of thirty dudes and stalled out the entire U.S. Army attack. They bottled them up and pinned them down with their superior marksmanship. 
and they didn't Games. know how to fight them back. They're like, oh God, every time I stick my head up, I get fucking my dome ventilated. <laughs> get a head piercing courtesy of Win- of Winchester. Yeah. And this did work. The warriors, but you know, it only works for a time because there's only 30 of them. You have 600 odd dudes. It's quite easy to eventually surround this person, uh, this group of people. So that's exactly what happened. Though they did manage to break off their charge um, and get back to the camp before they're completely cut off. And they bought enough time for the men in the camp to dig in and prepare. Now, you know, this is uh, the, the plains or whatever. It's a wide open prairie directly into prepared native defenses, which also shocks the US because, like, what do you mean they dug fighting positions? Why do they know how to do that? <laughs> so over the next two days soldiers charge at the Nez Perce lines over open prairie and each time were thrown back and because they didn't fucking prepare for this battle loss last any more than 10 minutes they didn't bring any food or water they left their supply train behind in July in the middle of an open fucking canyon in Idaho absolutely Bodied. Yeah. Well, I'm tapping the sign that says logistics again. Um, yeah. Wagon manifests. Yeah, Wagon manifests. Though in this situation, I am happy they did not bring them. Um, now, the warriors in the camp were well supplied by their own civilians, uh, mostly women and old men who ran water and food back and forth to their forward defensive lines so they could keep them fighting. And this defense worked. Eventually, on the morning of the 12th of July, the Nez Perce slipped out of the battlefield, crossed the Clearwater River, and continued their ongoing retreat towards Canada. Another 17 soldiers were dead, while the Nez Perce lost four. Ratio plus L. (laughs) As they crossed into the territory that belonged to the Crow tribe, they'd hoped that they'd be like, you know, some camaraderie or brotherhood there. Like, hey, we're kind of running from the army. Uh, Can we hang out here? The Crow told them to fuck off. Uh, (laughs) Don't bring that shit around here. Yeah. Uh, so they kept marching, telling any white people they saw that, hey, we don't want any problems. We're just passing through. And the reception was actually pretty good, neutral uh, at worst. Local settlers ate and traded with them. Uh, and this led the Nez Perce to believe that they were safe and very far away from Howard. So they didn't even bother to send out scouting parties, plan defense, set up a fortified camp. Uh, so when they did set up a camp, they didn't think they were in any danger and they planned to continue their journey the next day. What they didn't know is they actually didn't have to worry about Howard. Another command under Colonel John Gibbon was also chasing them and was rapidly closing in on where they had camped in an area called the Big Hole. They're posting hole on the plains. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's in western Montana. The big, it's known as the Battle of the Big Hole. <laughs> Which is a joke where I say, I, see, I, I believe your mom took part in this battle. At a drum, like, brum I'm not proud wait, of that. Wait, one. wait, 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 wait. Thank you. Um, Gibbon gave explicit orders to his men. No quarter was to be given. They were taking no prisoners. Everyone was to be killed. I feel like that's this is that was the last time I'm gonna laugh for the next like twenty minutes. Yep. That's true. That is very true. Oh. There are rumors, though never confirmed, that Gibbon discovered the Nez Perce's location. Due to the Crow tribe selling them out, um, we don't. Narks. Yeah, uh, we don't. We don't know if they narked them out to the cops or not, but it seems likely. 
Um, now, on the his attack began on the morning of August 9th and caught the camp by complete and total surprise. Uh, most of the Nez Perce were sleeping in their tents, and this attack was, uh, you know, part and parcel of what they normally do. Charge the camp, break them and make them run, and then ride them down. And that worked. Uh, they were firing indiscriminately as they went. However, after clearing out about half of the camp, they paused to set fire to half of the tents or teepees. This took so long because the teepees weren't burning that Looking Glass and Whitebird were able to rally warriors on the other side of the camp and finally establish defense. Uh, they shot Gibbon in the leg and killed his horse. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I'm just I'm just imagining some like Irish dude who just speaks no English at all, like trying to like put a torch to a tent. It's like it's not burning. It's not burning. Why is it not burning? And then you just hear a horse scream and your commander gets his kneecap blown off. um and uh like the soldiers who were so busy trying to burn down this camp got cut down pretty fast by the defender's fire and the attack was halted after only 20 minutes gibbon his leg probably turned the other way from a musket ball or something had to pull his men back before everything devolved into a sniper duel which he knew he would lose uh the nez purse were still unquestionably better shots even better than these seasoned men and after bogging them down with the revolutionary concept of good aim, the warriors withdrew on the 10th of August, leaving behind 90 dead, most of whom were women and children. So the many Nez pe- Par- The Nez Perce got the uh, Native American version of Captain Price. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So many people were, were, were killed from the Nez Perce uh, during this attack. There wasn't a single family of the anti-treaty bands that didn't lose someone that day. Gibbon continued chasing them as they passed through the Yellowstone National Park, which had been established. Uh, They managed to outmaneuver the soldiers once again, but not before exacting some revenge. Previous to this, Joseph thought he might be able to negotiate an end to this war that left something of his tribe intact and on lands favorable to them. After the Battle of the Big Hole, he was convinced that this was never going to happen. There was no quarter to be given, a none to be expected. They shot any white person they found along the way, because after the last battle, they considered anyone, any white person that they saw to be on the side of the soldiers that were trying to exterminate them. At this point, the stress of the retreat had begun to break the anti-treaty band leadership, which was never quite unified in the first place. Joseph and another prominent leader, Poker Joe, advocated for the bands to keep going towards Canada. They cannot rest. We have to keep going. Looking Glass, who's now the most important military leader of the group, said they need to stop and rest because they're running their people and horses into the ground. And if they kept going, they'd be too tired to make it to the safety of Canada. Eventually, Joseph and Poker Joe caved uh, with uh, like Poker Joe saying, quote, Looking Glass, you can lead. I'm trying to save the people, doing my best to cross into Canada before the soldiers find us. You can take command, but I think we'll all be caught and killed. So with Looking Glass in charge, they set up camp for the last time near Snake Creek at the foothills of the Bear Paw Mountains, only 40 miles from the Canadian border. They would never cross that border. They knew they had shaken off Howard and Gibbon, but were unaware of a third commander, General Nelson Miles, who commanded elements of the 5th Cavalry, the 7th Cavalry, famous, famously Custer's old unit, and the 2nd Cavalry, as well as Lakota and Cheyenne scouts, who had been fighting the soldiers just a year before. Ooh. 
they found the Nez Perce camp on September 30th, encircled it, and began laying siege with their artillery. The Nez Perce had scraped out fighting positions, which, you know, winter is closing in now, so the ground is mostly frozen. But they managed to scrape out fighting and fighting positions as well as like shelters for civilians because they're mm. firing artillery at them. Yeah. Um, and they were no longer underarmed. They were awash with more rifles than they had men to shoot them as they captured them all from the dead soldiers. In fact, they had so many rifles that every single warrior in a fighting position had three different repeating rifles alongside him, along with another guy or woman who'd reload them in between so he could fire literally continuously forever. They had thousands of rounds of ammunition. Yeah. However, Miles was worried. He knew that he could win this battle militarily for sure. There was no question. Uh, But he was worried if the siege continued and went on and on because, you know, they have the weapons and the means to resist, that Sitting Bull might ride down from Canada with a native army at his back and relieve them. So at some point, someone opened negotiations. So no one is entirely sure if it was Miles or one of his indigenous scouts. They managed to broker a temporary truce, which was immediately broken by soldiers who ran out and kidnapped Chief Joseph. Looking Glass, I assume, said, fuck you, ran out and captured a lieutenant who had gotten too close to their camp, who then exchanged him to get Joseph back. (laughs) This is definitely the work of, like, some absolute greenhorn private who thought it was a great idea, showed up to Miles, and Miles was like, what the fuck are you after doing? Yeah, we have a deal. Um, Now, afterwards, uh, the soldiers began shelling the camp once again. Now, during this phase... Uh, there's, you know, sniping duels, there's artillery, there's small skirmishes. Looking Glass, Frog, and Poker Joe are all killed. This leads leadership to Joseph and Whitebird only. And, you know, they're running out of food. It's getting very cold. Uh, you know, people are getting sick. They can continue to fight, but both, both of them are realistic enough to know that, like, we, we aren't getting out of this one. They begin to discuss if they should surrender. Joseph was in favor of surrendering, while Whitebird didn't want to stay and fight, but he wanted to organize a breakout to make for Canada. And Joseph contended that, you know, we could have made a breakout if we leave behind the old, the sick and the wounded, which I'm not willing to do. Yeah. And, you know, the children and, and like, you know, they remember the last battle they had just fought. They saw what the army did to all these people. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not. Yeah. Eventually two Nez Perce men who are pro treaty members and had been with the army were sent into the camp to try to convince them to surrender, promising that nobody's going to be executed or otherwise punished. They would be given blankets and food and be brought back to the reservation in Idaho. Yeah, I really believe that. Now, the thing is, Howard and Miles meant it, but we'll get to that point. Joseph, with White Bird, just like, you know, I fine. Joseph accepted the surrender, sending a message that is now famous or rather infamous to Howard. He, now, he relayed it Orally, which was then written down by one of the Nez Perce men. It said, quote, tell Howard I know his heart. What he told me before, I have in my heart. I'm tired of fighting. Our chiefs are killed. Looking Glass is dead. Growler is dead. The old men are all dead. It's the young men who say yes and no. He who lead the young men are all dead. It is cold and we have no blankets. The little children are freezing to death. My people, some of whom have run away to the hills, have no blankets, no food, and no one knows where they are perhaps freezing to death. I want to have time to look for my children and see how many I can find. Maybe I shall find them among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs. I'm tired. 
My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. The government then immediately went back on their word under the order of William Tecumseh Sherman, the absolute genocidal psychopath who arguably took a more active part in the genocide of America's indigenous people than anyone else. And civil war hero. Isn't that fun? Yeah. Rather than be sent back home to Idaho, home in quotations there, the survivors were marched to Bismarck, stuffed into a train and taken to Kansas. From there, they were exiled to Oklahoma for seven years to die of exposure on the plane. (laughs) You can do it, Joe. Most of them would die there, a purposeful act of genocide committed by the U.S. government. Chief Joseph later said, I believe General Miles, or I never would have surrendered. Joseph and the last 268 surviving Nez Perce were allowed to return to the Pacific Northwest almost 10 years after the end of the war. But even then, they were not allowed to return to their land and instead were sent to the Colville Indian Reservation in Washington. Joseph spent the rest of his life demanding and advocating for his people to be allowed to go back to their homeland, but each time he was refused. He died on September 21st, 1904, and even his corpse was not allowed to return to his ancestral lands to be buried alongside of his father. The end. That was miserable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, um, this happened a lot. William Tecumseh Sherman was a fucking psychopath. Um, he hated Native people. He was key to the campaign to murder all of the buffalo in the United States so the Indians had nothing to eat. Like... Uh. He has more blood on his hands, possibly, than any other American military leader in history. I'm sure we'll do a series about him at some point. Oh, we'll certainly talk about a lot of the shit that he did. Like, the march to the sea uh, during the Civil War is obviously what what he's famous for. Um, But yeah, he was... There's a reason why the government liked him after the Civil War. He was very good at, quote-unquote, controlling indigenous people. And by that, I mean... Killing them. Killing them and coming up with, you know, an environment that would not be proficient enough for them to survive. Like that is out out and out, bullet point by bullet point, an act of genocide by William Tecumseh Sherman, the US military, and the US government. I feel like I need a drink and a cigarette after that. Payback's a bitch, Tom. Yeah. You got about fifty percent of the way there. You you got one more episode in you than than we're even. Oh, Boy, do I have so many. Tom, to lighten the mood a bit, we have a thing on this show called Questions from the Legion. Um, If you want to ask us a question from the Legion, support us on Patreon. You can ask us in the Discord. You can ask us through a DM or message on Patreon. Um, You can load it into a cannon and fire it directly at London where Nate or Tom will receive it. Editor's note, do not fire a cannon at London. Um, I feel like that's probably against the law. (laughs) Slightly. Uh, This question comes to us from the Patreon. Uh, You guys are athletic. What is one sport you've always wanted to try but have never had the opportunity? Tom? Uh, Either um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because I am a man approaching his 30s and need something to base my personality on. Or I I really want to try fencing. I I would be super interested in like, I guess it's like Western sword fighting, like Hema? fencing or ke- like any i want to hit a guy with a sword so fencing hemo or or kendo i'd be super interested in myself um for me it's hurling i've always been really interested in hurling yeah hell yeah come come to london i'll show you how to play hurling at, it, like for, yeah 
for those of you who don't know, hurling is the one of the two, well, technically three, uh, national sports of Ireland. It's what are the other two? Uh, Gaelic football and handball. What is Gaelic football? So imagine soccer, but you can pick the ball up and you can kick it, and like rather than just kicking it into the goal, you can kick it over the bar. It, it, Google it. Wikipedia so exists. So Irish rugby. Yeah. Kind of, <laughs> so there is um there's a combination between uh, Australian rugby and Gaelic football that is played in between Ireland and Australia, and it's like actually quite interesting. It's called Aussie Rules. Um, oh, Australian Rules football is a sport that I've always wanted to understand because I'm so interested that it's like that that weird Italian uh, festival game where it's more yeah. of like an MMA fight than a fucking ball game. I love it. Yeah, I, wa- I watched a documentary about that. It looks so I cool. I did as well. Yeah, yeah. It's like almost entirely populated by insane fascists, something they have in common with the Italian government now. But like, it's like super interesting because these guys do not make a living doing this whatsoever. It's just like once a year, like time to get together and murder the guys on the other side of the city. Yep, yep. Um, hurling, uh, for anyone who's interested, is also the world's fastest field game. So, like, the the pace that it's played at is just, like, it's faster than ice hockey, faster than, like, well, definitely American football or basketball. But Everything's I think faster than American football. Everything. Yeah, but, but it's, like, incredible to watch. Um, I, I hope I'm going to hurling pill some people who listen to this show. We're going to have, like, a lot of Americans are getting into... Uh, hurling the way that like some Irish people are really into American football. Yeah. I mean, hurling has always interested me because like, I've never liked lacrosse growing up where I grew up. Lacrosse is a rich guy's sport. So I, I like, I just grew to fucking hate it because I hated the people who played it. And like hurling looks like a cooler version of lacrosse. Um, so like, I've always wanted to try, obviously not exactly a lot of pickup hurling going on in Yerevan. Um, unless you play football or, or like wrestle or box here. The sporting world is quite thin. But uh, yeah, like I've always wanted to try. Sure, I'll never find a place to try unless I go to the UK again. Um, or hit a guy with a sword. I think ever there's some there's something primal in every human that want <laughs> that you want to hit a dude with a sword or a stick that looks like a sword. You want to hit someone yeah. with something. Um, I'm, yeah. I, I feel like I could probably find a fencing place here, though. I could probably yep. look for that. You can um, end up like Scorsese and just get like that scar. Yeah, I'm gonna do German fencing, which is blocking swords with my face. I mean, I ha- <laughs> I have what is known as a face for radio, and you can now call it a face for catching swords. <laughs> um, Tom, use this space to plug your stuff. Uh, listen to Beneath the Skin show about the history of everything, told through the history of tattooing. Um, me and my co-host Matt Lauder, we talk about like interesting historical ephemera that connects tattooing to history in general so we've got some interesting stuff we did a his a four-part series on the history of japan and how that affected uh japanese tattooing a lot of other stuff like that also um i don't know when this episode is coming out but uh, depending on the timing you can now pre-order new lions led by donkeys merch a hong christ t-shirt that says Live fast, eat grass. <laughs> yeah, and I'll make sure I put the, the links for all of our new merch store that we're working on. We'll be not only in the show notes, I'll put it on our Twitter. Um, and, you know, I'll have to redo the the bumper in the beginning of the show, which has been in place for about four and a half years now for our new <laughs> merch store. Uh, but yeah, uh, if you like what we do here, 
consider supporting us on Patreon. You get episodes like this early. You get five years of back bonus content. You get Discord access or Discord rules. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we we're all yelling at each other live uh, during Eurovision. Um, sporting events, wrestling, everybody hangs out, plays games together, talks about pretty much anything to do with anything other than those podcasts, quite honestly, but it's a lot of fun. It's a cool community. And our Patreon goal, if we hit 5,000 supporters on Patreon, we will read Saddam Hussein's romance novel um and talk about it uh during the show we're we're not going to read it line by line because like unlike the t-rex novel it's a proper length book um but we will read it uh i'm an author nate is a writer and has a master's in fine arts i feel like we are qualified to roast the ghost writers who wrote saddam hussein's book uh on their merit uh, so I look forward to doing that. So support us on Patreon. Maybe we'll get there. We're like 400-ish off now. So consider doing that. Only a dollar a month gets you a lot. And again, Tom, thank you so much uh, for joining me here to talk about this very not uplifting story. Not that our last one was either. We were talking about dudes getting imploded in a submarine, but this one is worse. Um, yeah. Maybe next time our show will be happier, but probably not. <laughs> that's the joke of Sabian promise that is the lines of by donkey's progress uh promise it, it will it'll be worse um and until next time fuck william tecumseh sherman <laughs> <laughs>